The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining. You got to know when to hold them. Know when to fold them. Mike, of course, we're talking about gambling today. How are you doing? I was going to say that's probably a, like, you know, in the world of online betting, you could probably have one for the Unlikely Innovators. That's, is Steve going to open the show with a little ditty this week? And I mean, you probably would have been, you know, in, uh, in a safe position to say, yes, I, I think he will. Right. So what, well, what other I, kind of prop bets could we have for, for the like innovators? Well, I should have definitely chosen a more up-to-date song. That's the only one I could think of that has anything to do with gambling. Uh, because today we have on the, on the pod, a very cutting edge uh, betting company. Uh, we have Steven Saltz from rivalry games or rivalry, rivalry gaming, I should say. Um, so we're, we were super excited to have him on. Um, I doubt that most of the people that use this platform even know who Kenny Rogers are because it's definitely the younger uh, demo, but it was, it was super great to have him on. Yeah, no, I, I think we, you and I both learned a lot. Um, you know, I think kind of in, in preparing for the show with Steven, you know, we, we did our homework and I think obviously knew, you know, where they were positioned and what they were offering, but I think just hearing it from him. And I think, you know, to your point, as we ended the conversation with him, just, I think kind of understanding where they're going and, you know, what they're trying to do to clean up. I think some of those, uh, some of those gray areas in the industry, was really interesting. So again, a, a very exciting company um, and just really kind of cool to talk to him about, especially as somebody who, you know, I think kind of fits the bill of the unlikely innovators just because I think his journey was kind of unlikely, right? Obviously mm-hmm. you talked about being a gamer, but I think a lot of us at, at this certain vintage had, you know, some gaming roots. Doesn't mean that you'd necessarily think that that would become your career path, right? He obviously went into finance and then kind of found his way back when he was, when he was doing a lot of the, you know, the, the online gaming and some of the, the trading that he was doing. Um, but certainly, yeah, it's a really interesting chat. Uh, really great to talk to Steven. Yeah. And I mean, uh, <laughs> Just when I think I know something about something, I'm, we bring another guest on and I realize how little I know. So uh, hopefully you guys can uh, learn along with us. We'll give you Stephen Saul's from Rivalry right now. All right, so we're now pleased to be back and joined by Stephen Sauls, who is the co-founder and CEO of Rivalry. He is a passionate gamer, having completed, competed in his first esports tournament a decade ago with Major League Gaming. His career started with a brief stint in the defense industry, followed by asset management at Scotiabank, and then as an analyst at a boutique investment firm. And now he joins us as of, as I've already said, the co-founder and CEO of Rivalry. So Stephen, thanks for joining us on the Unlikely Innovators. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. No problem. So typically before we start a conversation with our guests, you know, we like to find out the journey, you know, before they got to where they are now. And I know that I kind of described some of the stops you had along the way before, before co-founding Rivalry, but can you maybe talk a little bit about your journey in your own words, just to kind of tell the audience, you know, where you came from and, and how you got to be where you are now? Yeah, sure. I mean, more specifically, definitely when I was younger, like most people my age, I'd played a lot of video games and specifically you know, Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, all that kind of stuff. And then going into university, I was definitely really interested in what was happening more in like game economies. And then when I went professionally into finance, so yeah, I worked in the financial industry and 2012, 2013, you had the two biggest esports now, or two of the three biggest esports now and very popular video games are counter, this game called Counter-Strike. It's like five versus five PC shooting game. And then a Dota 2, which is a five versus five kind of strategy game. <clears throat> and the publisher for both of those is Valve and they released an update called the arms deal update where basically you could trade with other users in-game aesthetics or in-game items called skins that very quickly, this is like NFTs before NFTs. Mm-hmm. And this very quickly spawned like a multi-billion dollar marketplace where like that was the liquidity within a couple of years where 
you had the internal marketplace on the Steam marketplace. So Steam is like one of the largest gaming platforms. And then uh, third-party marketplaces started being created because the challenge with the Steam marketplace, the community marketplace is you bought and sold items for real money and the items were valued based on rarity. So it's the same as playing like an RPG game where you kill a monster and, you know, 20, 30% chance it's going to drop something kind of shitty and another 30% chance a little less shitty and then 0.01% chance you get this like insane item. Those ones, that was kind of the mechanic of how it worked and those really valuable ones, some of them could go for thousands of real dollars, the skins, like just like aesthetics. So the third-party marketplaces though allowed you to cash out because the community marketplace, you couldn't pull money out. So you could win a great item and sell it for four grand and then you're just going to have four grand in your Steam account that you can't withdraw to your own bank account. So that's what these third-party marketplaces did. I was in finance and I was buying and selling and basically like arbing those items between marketplaces along with a bunch of other people. And it was really interesting. And then come 2015, I thought, hey, this is actually great business. It's kind of risky because the publisher can shut you down at any point in time, but it looks interesting. And it felt like the, it felt like the tip of the spear of like game monetization independent of just the game publishers. So mm-hmm. I looked to invest in one of those marketplaces and met who would eventually become my co-founders for Rivalry in 2015, became friends. And then late 2016, we said, hey, there's other opportunities beyond this kid's marketplace. Let's look at those. And then it eventually turned into kind of early 2017 and it became Rivalry and started to build a regulated sports book for, I wouldn't say just like gaming and esports, but a regulated sports book focused on like the under 30 demographics, so like, you know, gaming and esports fans, but also fans of other things within that demo cohort. So yeah, that's kind of how it got to Rivalry. Short story. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I feel like I need to make the story longer. I have so many <laughs> questions, you know, just from, from what, that's not where I thought it came from. So that's, yep. that's really interesting. Um, I play Call of Duty every night. Uh, I have a clan tag. It's, nice. it's, it's silly. Um, you know, I what play with say like, what it is now. Yeah, you got to uh, you got to share it now. <laughs> well, it's uh, is it so PG? A, is yeah, it going to yeah, 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 get yeah, you yeah. in trouble? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's based on a like a brewery I've been starting to uh, nice. to get together. So it's it you know you have limited characters in yeah. the, you know, between the parentheses and it's Burwash, nice. uh, which is the name of a community outside of Sudbury where we're recording from today. Um, but yeah, I, I'm not great at it, but it's just like so fun to to play. I just wanted to ask you, uh, when you were playing professionally, was it Call of Duty that you were mainly participating no, in? No, it... it was Rainbow Six on Xbox oh, in the cool. early 2000s with my twin brother. And it was not, there was no professional gaming then in any way that it's looked at today. It was, I mean, for the Canadian people, it was, it would culminate in the Fan Expo. So you go to the Fan Expo in Toronto and there'd be, you know, MLG would be there or the few kind of entities that existed at the time. And it would be, literally like a couple folding chairs and a TV and there's no audience, no nothing. And that was like competitive gaming back then, or there were, we were in a clan and everything like that. And it was a competitive ecosystem on Xbox live at the time, but it was, there's no depth to it compared to what people think of today in terms of esports. Yeah. Yeah. Now they wear jerseys and uh, you know, they're, they're like the uh, exalted stars that we see on the, yeah, you know, good. on the basketball court. I mean, we have a few students that actually work alongside us, uh, one of them lane he sort of does that in his spare time and he said he told me he's making more money on twitch than he is on uh you know the the work we pay him for so you know it's hard to it's hard to grab his attention away um so i was we were going to ask you about uh so how did the sort of gambling side come into play were you did you ever gamble before no uh, in any meaningful way no, my co-founders didn't either. We were, we're all kind of just technologists. My other co-founders are more like serial entrepreneurs, built and sold a couple of different you know, web-based businesses. 
um, across multiple different industries. We're all gamers and all just kind of, I'd say interested in internet culture more so, which in gaming happens to be like an extremely dominant component. So if you look at percentage views on YouTube, gaming is the largest category. It's almost double the next largest one. Uh, most frequently uploaded video, most uh, viewed average length, everything like that. So as a as a component of internet culture, gaming is just extremely dominant. And we are more we are more interested on what's happening on like the outer edges of the internet, I'd say, of which gaming has to be a huge component of it. And then we were running the Skins Marketplace. We were interested in what was happening in that ecosystem. And one of the big use cases for Skins at the time, we were not operating this because it's completely illegal. But one of the things people were doing is was Skins betting. So because there was a third-party marketplace to cash out for real money of Skins, people started using Skins like casino chips for Skins betting websites. That became very popular. And they were betting on esports. So you're betting on competitive Counter-Strike using Counter-Strike Skins as your casino chips on a Skins betting site. And... That was also doing, there was a big ESPN op-ed in late 2016. There was like 5 billion in betting handle just on skins betting alone on esports. So we saw the interest and traffic in that, but we also knew it was totally illegal because we knew the age of our users and the jurisdictions they were coming from. But we felt that there was a bit of a shift in the mentality around sports betting. And if you look at what's happened with crypto, you've got all these prediction marketplaces, which is just a really fancy way of saying sports betting or gambling. Mm. And it seemed that the psychology around sports betting went from it's kind of what's happened with investing with well simple and Robinhood, where the new cohort or new generation coming into these consumer experiences is thinking about it more as their generation thinks about a lot of things which is like an entertainment product also as something that's transactional so investing has become an entertainment product let's just be totally honest for a lot of people mm-hmm. so and same thing with trading cards and the renaissance of pokemon cards and everything that's happened there and we saw the same thing started to happen in betting where the stigma was coming down people were not betting crazy amounts of money they just wanted to do it as a entertainment wrapper around watching gaming and watching other things so we felt there was just an opportunity to a that stuff was illegal we're probably going to die but there's still a predisposed audience that's interested and b the consumer experience and thinking around sports betting was changing and we could get ahead of that as a product and a brand and it just seemed like a really interesting opportunity for us at the time. And we looked around, nobody was really doing it. Now there's tons of different operators, but um, it was really as simple as that. And we were just excited to build kind of a different experience for that. So we, we went ahead and did it. Yeah. And this might be a bit too in the weeds and maybe it's not even an important question, but if the skins are the currency that you're using to bet early on, this is now yep. backward looking. How was that currency evaluated and how is that on an ongoing basis change? Yep. Yeah, the skins, the skins marketplaces were it was it was kind of like early crypto days where there was like hundreds of exchanges and they were so liquid. Mm-hmm. So the, the reason I was able to even like arbitrage them is the markets were so liquid you could buy on one site and sell on another like in an instant. And people had bots that were doing this. So it was just such a liquid market and they look like stocks. You can even go now and look at some of these skins marketplaces and they're charted and the prices look like stocks because like there's different reasons why the value goes up and down for different individual skins or aesthetics, right? So because the market was so liquid, you could actually like paying a market price and you could, and it was a valid casino chip because the price would deviate massively between placing a bet and the bet uh, being settled, right? So it was a valid casino chip, but it was illegal because you were bypassing everything. And unfortunately, what's been happening with crypto now is there are a lot of crypto casinos and crypto betting sites that are doing the same thing as what was happening here. Those also aren't going to last because you just can't do that forever. But this eventually got shut down. So what ended up happening is it was somewhat coincidence in a couple months into us starting to go down the regulated route and do this the right way. You had probably on the back of that ESPN article, a bunch of parents do a class action lawsuit against the game publisher Valve for enabling underage gambling because they saw their kids were using their parents' credit card 
And very quickly, the parents are like, why is 14 year old Jimmy, you know, gambling? It just doesn't look right. So that, that then the publisher went after all these sites and then the whole thing kind of got wound down basically. So um, it did die in the end, but, but, but that's how it worked. Yeah. I find that so fascinating. I feel like I missed the boat on on the esports though. Like I Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 was my game, but that was like that was back in you know 2009, um, yeah. before before the advent of all this. I mean, not to say that I was any good at it, so obviously I wouldn't have it's not like I missed out on a chance to become uh, <laughs> an esports uh, pro gamer by any means, but I think it makes me think of other um, you know, on the other side when you look at the the betting and the book side of the house, like growing up like never really thought of, of gambling. And I think even with card games, like people, my age, I think got into it when like poker kind of rose up right around the same time, a little bit before that. Um, but I think there's still a tendency with, you know, people of our vintage to associate like casinos with like an older generation. And obviously the work you guys are doing with rivalry, you know, you're targeting that under 30 demographic. Uh, can you maybe talk about how maybe, and I guess maybe this is kind of a pandemic question, right? Because I think it's kind of tied to the fact that we haven't really been able to go anywhere for two years. So maybe that's been a, like an advantage because you've got people at home on their phones, on their computers, and suddenly looking for anything you know, to sure. kind of do something, right? And I think if it's, it's funny because I don't want to throw too much at you, but even with the Pokemon cards you mentioned, like my brother-in-law, who I'd never known to be a Pokemon card collector or trader in the pandemic, like that's what he went into like full bore and like he's doing that on the side and it seems to be pretty lucrative for him. But anyway, my initial question was about, uh, was about the gambling side and, you know, online casino and how do you guys kind of go after that coveted uh, under 30 demo? Yeah, that was also like the surge in retail investing definitely came early in the pandemic because people just started to get into it and and it was treated more as like, again, like an entertainment thing and people were taking their, you know, stimmy checks and that's what they were doing with it. But with us, for sure, for example, like we don't offer slots, so we, we don't do slots because under 30s, A, probably shouldn't be doing that and B, um, they're not excited and don't have the attention span for like a jungle themed slot machine or some like Egyptian themed slot machine. Like it's ridiculous. So <laughs> they, the way that we do it is everything top to bottom we built in house. So what happens mostly in sports betting and online casinos, everything is third party. So there's lots of, if you look at the, even the public markets, you've got the B2C companies and you've got a lot of the B2B companies in sports betting is almost an equal amount of the public companies. So most sports books are white labels. They just license the front end and the back end put their brand on it and then it's a marketing game. So it's how much money can you put behind promotion and bonusing and all this kind of stuff and bring people into the sports book at the playing slots and all the slots also are just like third-party iframes. So you go to the site, it's all the same games and all the same sites. So it's really just like a marketing engine and a promotion engine. And usually the only competitive advantage is who has the biggest balance sheet. And then you got two capital cans shooting at each other and it's just not an exciting industry dynamic. So the way that we went into it is we felt that what was happening with these products, the same as investing and, and elsewhere, is it's now just becoming like most consumer categories and consumer industries where you have to build legitimate brand equity and fan loyalty and engagement. And you can't just win on who's got the best promotion and it's not a super transactional thing anymore. So we built our entire product in-house. We do all the engineering, everything ourselves, <clears throat> everything from regist registering depositing, placing a bet, winning a bet, losing a bet, interacting with support, everything top to bottom is a very like modern user experience. It just feels more novel and feels like somebody that grew up with the internet rather than somebody that's a little later. And then the type of product we offer as well is obviously very sports book centric versus casino centric. We don't have any online casino currently. And even with the casino stuff we do have, we built our own product called Rush Lane. It's like in the Unity engine, we have a games team and it's an originally developed game and it's a multiplayer game. So it's not a isolated silo slots experience it's you have to play with other people it's like marble race meets mario kart and it's just a 
you know, kind of RNG random number, random number generator game. So everything we do from product to like aesthetics, tone, marketing, brand is very much as building like an engaging consumer brand. And even the way that the site has been done and the type of people we've acquired in the end, they're betting like what they spend on like Uber Eats in a week or like their Netflix subscription, which is, which is what we want. Because even the original application we made actually for the license, which got rejected in the end, was we wanted actually to build like a SaaS betting product. So we actually didn't want people to even be able to pick how much they deposit. We just wanted to ping them for 20 bucks a month. And then you're betting again, is just like a core and pure entertainment experience, you know, 20 bucks a month. That's it. That's like your subscription to rivalry. We couldn't do it for various like different regulatory reasons, but that was the philosophy. And that's still kind of the philosophy of the product. So that's where we see it's going is, is it's just a attack on to a, you know, engaging sports viewing or sports watching experience. And that's all it should really be. And it should be something that totally kind of takes over your life. So, so that's, that's the entire approach that we have to the product. I want to pick up on something you said. I have, I have two things I wanted to, 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 to bat for you, bat towards you, and, and they're both very different. One thing you said that really struck a chord with me was marble races. And I don't know if you mean what I'm thinking, but like I've honestly spent hours watching like marbles in these sand tracks that yeah. are made by people and, and like hoping the blue one wins. And you're not a psychologist, but why do I care so much if the blue one is going to come back? Uh, it's totally random. Like that seems like something, you know, it's like, it's the same thing as horse racing, of course. Like it's gotta be the same psychological yeah. feeling, but like, sorry, there's probably a newborn making a bunch of noise in the back. So I apologize. Quite all right. This is, yeah. uh, this is how we do it. Family friendly podcast. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got like a seven week old. So um, yeah, for, for people just like having like skin in the game and just also there's like a pride element to it. So definitely also during the pandemic, even Barstool was running like fake horse races on Twitch and these marble races on Twitch became extremely popular. So there's just something to, there's something very human about skin in the game and putting your, your money where your mouth is or putting your pride where your mouth is. And that's why these games are very popular. And then even with our game called Rush Lane, <clears throat> it's like a horse race, but you are the horse. So when you enter the game, you're putting a couple bucks on yourself and you actually see yourself populated into the game, your username, everything. And there's a live chat. So people are shit talking each other, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it's just like this um, low stakes, passive experience where you know the outcome is random. So it's not really skill-based and there's just something like very enticing about that. And it's just, it's just fun and super casual. So I think it's, it's really just as simple as that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I just couldn't believe that I was spending so much time caring about, uh, you know, a little glass bead and sand. But uh, <laughs> it can be, it can be anything, though. But I mean, it also can't be. You have to build a product that's going to resonate and that yeah. matters. And it seems like you guys sort of cracked the code on that. Um, so when I read this, um, I thought of like James Bond for some reason and like international intrigue. And I'll get to my point in a second. What is an what is an Isle of Man license? And uh, you know. Uh, that's obviously a real thing. Could you walk us through what that is and what that meant for rivalry? Yeah, the Isle of Man is like equidistant to Dublin, London, and um, I should know this. Where in Scotland? Maybe Glasgow, something like that. And it's like right in the middle of the Irish Sea. So it's it's a crown dependency of the UK online sports betting and regulating and licensing that is a big part of its business it's similar to gibraltar where gibraltar is the same and malta is also the same these are the three gold standard licenses where they're considered almost these beachhead licenses so if you look at the biggest sports books in the world biggest two would be bet 365 and betway but the people in canada currently bet on bet 365 bet 365 is a gibraltar license Betway has a malta license they're all very similar 
And what these licenses allow you to do, why they're considered these beachhead licenses, and usually you start with one of these, is it allows you to accept bets globally where there's no local, local regime in place and they're called gray markets. So it's not black or white, it's gray. They're literally called gray markets. Canada is one of the biggest gray markets in the world. People here bet a lot. And they bet on these sports books that have these like offshore licenses in these jurisdictions. So it's great because up until recently with Ontario legalizing, none of the provinces in the country had no legal framework for regulating sports betting, which meant that it was in a gray area. Most of the world is like this. You're talking like only 25, 30 countries globally have regulators that license operators to operate there. The rest of the world is like this. So getting that license means you can operate globally outside of these like license markets where you need the license. So it's mostly just like the very core of the EU, Ontario now, the US, Australia, one or two other places and that's it. So we, up until we recently earned a license in Australia and Ontario, we've been operating predominantly in South America, Southeast Asia, and the few parts of Europe where it's legal for us, where there's no license. So, so that's kind of how it works. It's like a starter license. And then you will start to pick off these individual country licenses because they're regulated markets and operating there, the dynamics are just quite different than operating in a gray market. Gotcha. And I mean, one of the other questions we had for you too, just because again, I, I know that Steve and I, you know, look like we're smart guys, but we need a, we need a little bit of hand-honing, especially in, uh, in this area. But, you know, last month, I guess it would be last month by the time this, this conversation comes out, you know, Rivalry became one of the first fully registered operators of internet gaming and sports betting yep. in Ontario. Um, but what does that mean, I guess, to the listener who may not be familiar with Rivalry or, or sports gaming yet? Sure. You can legally use Rivalry in the province of Ontario now. So you'd be able to register. You go to rivalry.com. You can sign up as a resident of Ontario legally. The deposit methods and everything to get money in will also be pretty easy. So the benefit of being a regulated operator in the province versus being a gray market operator offshore is one, Rivalry will be legally marketed to you. So we can actually market like on the ground, experiential, where, you know, rapid streetcars, doing a bunch of stuff in the city, working with influencers, all this kind of stuff. That's all legal. If you're offshore and as a gray market operator, you can't do any of those things. There'll be paid media. So if you're watching YouTube, Twitch, et cetera, you'll probably start to see rivalry ads. You will be seeing rivalry ads. And then the other big advantage is payments. So payments is like the bane of our existence and everyone that operates in gray markets because, because it's not legal or illegal. Moving money in and out of the country is just very annoying. It's annoying for everybody. It's just tough. So being a licensed operator in Ontario or registered provider means that payments are easier to come by because everything we're doing is totally by the book and legal here. So you'll be able mm -hmm. to use like interacts to deposit, for example, really easily. It'd be like totally seamless. Um, bank transfer, credit card, all this kind of stuff is totally legal and money goes in and out and it flows really easily. So that's really what it means. Like people right now are betting and have always historically bet offshore. So Bet365 and Betway and Pinnacle are three of the most popular sports books. The difference in those experiences is that most users will feel is one, they're not going to be marketed to, and they won't really care if they're already on the site, but two, the experience of moving money in and out, which frankly is a big part of the sports betting experience is depositing, betting, and withdrawing your money. That is much clunkier with those operators currently, and some of them are going to get licenses or many of them are going to get licenses, but that experience is very clunky versus the registered operators is going to be like way more seamless. It'll feel like a very typical, um, you know, online consumer experience like it, it won't feel any difference than you know a shopify checkout or something it'll mm -hmm. be very like seamless so that that's what's going to happen okay and I, I was i was just i was thinking about this while we've been talking to you and i mean like i think how you know obviously you're targeting like the 30 and under demo but i think of this like this whole other age group like my my father and my father-in-law's age group where they don't my father-in-law doesn't gamble but he's probably in like five or six different fantasy pools at once in the year right and he'll say i don't gamble but he's like he's in all these different mm -hmm. hockey pools and so 
I just, I'm just trying to think of like, how, like, how is that group who's been doing these pools since, you know, they had their kids were seven weeks old, let's say, and they've been doing this their entire lives. And some of these guys have had pools that are now 30 years old, but they don't do anything beyond just doing a fantasy draft and that's it. Um, I don't know where I'm really going with that. I just wanted, it made me think of like, you know, just back in the day stories about like drafting Wayne Gretzky in a playoff pool, but you could only draft his goals or his assists. They wouldn't let you draft his entire point total for the playoffs. And so them trying to regulate how do you deal with a player like that? Obviously we don't have Wayne Gretzky anymore, but it's just interesting yeah. to, to see the evolution. And, and those Wayne guys actually promoting bet MGM. So if you've been watching TV yeah. the last week or two, you see Wayne Gretzky starting to promote sports betting in Ontario. Yeah. <laughs> so the, so the big difference is, is fantasy has been historically extremely popular in North America because online sports betting hasn't been legal here. The U S legalized yeah. in 2018 so DraftKings and FanDuel became the biggest operators there because they were their thesis for a very long time and it cost a lot of money and it nearly killed, like those companies nearly went bust up until sports betting legalized and then their fortunes obviously changed. They were always preceding the market as fantasy players to then flip to sports betting. Because if you look at Europe where sports betting has been very legal for a very long time, like the UK, the longest standing market, they have betting shops as frequent as Starbucks there if you've ever, like if you've been to London, mm-hmm. right? There is no fantasy there because fantasy is fantasy is like the substitute product when sports betting is not legal because it's just not as good of an experience for the consumer, to be honest. So fantasy does exist still, like there's a mix of both, but it's way less popular. So what is typically found is like once sports betting legalizes, a lot of those fantasy players will continue to do their small fantasy stuff with their friends, but they will start to sports bet because they're predisposed to the behavior. Uh, and there will some that will just keep doing that exactly the way that, that, that it is. But but historically. Fantasy has been used as a way to precede markets ahead of legalization and then flip those users to a regulated sports betting product. Well, I think that exactly answers my question, right? Because for you know, obviously up until very recently, right? Like you couldn't do that in Ontario. So that's why, you know, people who are older than we would, would have probably gravitated towards fantasy because other than going to the casino, that yep. was really the only thing you could do. Right. So there we yeah, go. And, and, and they're less comfortable because if you're of the older generation, this type of information and the challenges of moving money to these sports books offshore can make people feel skittish so mm-hmm. you find typically that the older generation like mid 40s let's say 50 plus they're not as comfortable filling that info out and sending money to an offshore sports book whereas the, the 30 to 45 cohort kind of is and that's like the main one that's where like most of the users are and then the other the other 30 is just you know they're just kind of punting whatever and, and the internet is kind of real life for them it's it's no different right so mm-hmm. that their comfort is like extremely high so it's, it's becoming, it's a totally different experience even for them. Yeah. And I think, um, God, I have two things that I, so, so this is naive of me. I'm not a, I've never, like I say, I'm not a sports better, but I think I'm probably more like, uh, Mike's dad, even though I'm 35, uh, you know, I manage a bunch of different fantasy football teams here uh, and it almost ruined football for me, but I've uh, calmed down on that now. Where, where the heck does pro line fit in? Cause that's been around forever. Is that in a in a gray area or how was that ever allowed? No, so I mean OLG, right, is the provincial right. it's, it's a crown company and, and that was the monopoly. So a lot of the let's say resistance up until here has been OLG wanting to retain their current ability to operate and not have this turn into what it is now, which it's gonna be just a, a free market. So the the delay, a lot of the delay, like this was this was tried to be legalized like 15 plus years ago, actually for online sports betting. And then it just didn't happen. A lot of the delay has been from stuff like the OLG where they've had the historical monopoly here. And now they don't. They ended up getting to a point though where they're actually part of the conduct and manage with the AGCO. So this is run by the AGCO, the same as the cannabis industry is and liquor and other, other industries, right? And OLG is actually kind of in the framework a little bit. So, so they 
they are competitors to us now, but they also participate in a slightly more coupled way with the AGCO. But historically, that, that has been totally legal and the OLG has been doing that and it is going to continue to do that as well, right? Yeah, and we kind of covered this uh, a little bit, but um, I think I'm a bit of a, I, I, well, I don't know, I'll, I'll, I'll be corrected by you, but I'm a bit of a rarity in that I really like gaming and I really like sports. Um, I noticed that, you know, so esports betting, you're betting on the outcome of a match, right? Um, is that the same person that would watch football on Sunday and have a bunch of bets registered? Yeah. So the thing we've been saying for years, because people, I think, get confused about watching esports. And there, there used to be a great comic that I put in all of our investor decks back in like 2016, which showed a dad going up to his son, watching what looks like Twitch on his screen, saying, I don't know how you can watch people do that. And then he goes back to his couch and sitting on the couch and throwing popcorn to his face. And he's watching football on the TV. Yeah, and the yeah. thing that we say to people is like, all esports is, is if you abstract the fact that it's gaming and esports and take away all your preconceived notions, you're just watching two teams play each other in a thing that you like. You can substitute that for anything. Sports is watching two teams play each other in a thing that you like. That's it. So if you grew up on the internet, we see gaming and esports as the sport of the internet. And that, that's what it is. So the internet generation, people born 1995 and up, which is almost 40% of global population now, biggest cohort in history. This is just like an inevitable generational tidal wave. And of that demo in many markets, competitive gaming and casual gaming viewing on Twitch is much more popular than traditional sports for them in their market. And this is only going to continue. So for us, again, we just see this is the access point to the largest sport in internet culture. And internet culture now is mainstream culture. We see like internet smart is the new street smart. So that's, that's what we see happening. And, and that's what's most exciting for us. So um, yeah, that's what we look at. It. That, that should be worrying for the big sports leagues, I think, because you're drawing eyeballs away from, from their main product, right? And that's going to continue to be the case, right? Yeah, that's why the biggest investors a couple of years ago when esports got really popular and like new esports teams and stuff like this was uh, so the, the sport with the oldest fans is the MLB. So there's a there's a joke, but it's kind of true that for every MLB fan that dies, two esports fans are born. This is what people have been saying. And but the average MLB fan is in their 60s now. And the wow. average esports fan is 21 or 22. So the biggest investor actually in esports related assets a couple of years ago were MLB teams and MLB owners because they had to average down their audience. So this is definitely going to continue for sure. And people are going to continue to participate in the space as a result of that is basically to, to average down like kind of any consumer product or kind of uh, entertainment product for sure. And, you know, I'm just thinking now, cause it's been a couple months since the winter Olympics. And obviously we got the, the summer Olympics coming up in a couple of years, but like, do you see, and I know that like the IOC last year had like, uh, I think they were, they had some licensed events that they were doing in, in, in advance of the games, but do you see that as the, we'll eventually see esports in the Olympics? Is that where we're trending? I know that there's already been a lot of debate around that right now, but is, is that the direction you think we're going? Yeah, there's something called like the Asia Games, I think, and it's part of like a precursor event into the Olympics that actually has a couple of esports in it right now, and it will for the for the next for the next upcoming run. So the expectation is definitely that esports or competitive gaming is probably you know a couple of cycles of Olympics away from mm -hmm. from being included for sure. So it, it's also a bit of an inevitability. The thing that confuses people and what's the Olympics have had to get their head around is game popularity shifts. So you could add a game now and then come the next four-year cycle for whichever Olympics it's going to be in, that game may no longer be popular, but something else will be. So it's yeah. like, as, as the Olympic body, that's just very jarring. But mm -hmm. as anyone who spends any time on the internet, the attention spans are plummeting for everything. 
And that's just the reality now for entertainment and content and sports and everything is attention spans are like nothing. So it's, you know, how do you adapt to that environment? How do you adapt to that market? It's the same thing that independent of what we do, but, you know, we're also a public company. And this is another kind of thing that we, we deal with is that average holding periods for public stocks have plummeted. So I used to work in the financial industry. And I remember in 2012, 2011, the average holding period for a mutual fund or a hedge fund for a position was like 14 to 18 months or something like that. And now it's under six months. So, and retail investors, Robinhood gives out their numbers. Retail investors on Robinhood is measured in single digit weeks. So anyone who's built a business knows you can't get a lot done in a couple of weeks. That's like of any kind of impact. So even public markets deals with this now is like, how do you retain attention span and what you're trying to do in your story and what you're trying to develop or any kind of product you have. And I'm sure you guys think, feel this with podcasts and everything you do, right? Is attention spans are like this, it's like razor thin now. So how do you, yeah, actually, Stephen, we've gone, well, we've gone past the 30 minutes, so we have to cut it off. I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah. of course. No, but you're quite right. I mean, uh, it's interesting. The, the Olympics as an analogy is really interesting because, you know, you could see within the sports and events within the Olympics, they change moderately over decades. I mean, you look at even what's like the quickest has been what's going on in like snowboarding and the addition of new events and new events, man, that could change month to month sometimes with gaming yep. trends, right? I mean, so they're going to have to really wrap their head around that. So, I mean, what could start as, you know, uh, Counter-Strike could be a very different game, you know, five years down the road, right? Yep, definitely. So there are games, I mean, Counter-Strike's been popular for 20 years. It's the longest standing, most popular esport. So there could be a criteria based on number of views, prize pool, uh, history of a competitive ecosystem, like they could pick some criteria and it would be totally valid and it would, it would work. I mean, it's, it's, it's doable. They could have one in the FPS category and one in the mobile category, which is like League of Legends or Dota. And those games also have been popular for more than a decade. And, and you're, you're good. Like you'd be able to have a very, very competitive Olympics with those three games or even just two of those games. So it's, it's going to come. It'll, it'll be shocking for people are going to have everyone on Twitter kind of complaining. Why am I watching video games? Why are video games in the Olympics? But yeah, I mean, video games as a revenue category, the publishers do more than uh, the aggregate of the music, movie, and radio industry combined. So, and the television industry combined, it's the largest entertainment industry on the earth and has been for a number of years, more than the aggregate of almost everything else combined. So this is just reality now. Yeah. And, you know, we, we talked about like short attention spans and appetite for new things. Like Steven mentioned earlier that, you know, he got into like marble racing, you know, probably at the outset of the pandemic. And we've seen like the rise where you can, of, of different kinds of online betting where you can bet on the weather or, uh, yep. or, or an election and things like that. So I guess in terms of like where the limits are on what we could place bets, like where do you see online betting going in terms of like random everyday events where you can now wager on on something like is it going to rain today or is mike going to get his wordle done you know in three tries or whatever it may be yeah we kind of like it it's like zeitgeist kind of betting and it's the type of stuff that we're looking at offering all the time that is becoming more and more popular it's more of a headline than it is generating a huge amount of betting action right now for mm -hmm. sure but it is becoming more popular and this is where prediction markets and crypto became interesting for people where you have auger that was a really big one or gnosis that existed i don't think it does anymore and you've got a couple others where it was going to be used to price out risk events for even like insurance companies and stuff like this. Like it, it went really crazy how far we go because when people put their money where their mouth is, they tend to do a lot more work and think very differently about it. And it tends to be actually quite accurate relative to what models can do for you, like pricing models. So we do think that, yeah, it, people are going to look to kind of bet or want to put a couple bucks on really anything in the future. Definitely. So that's really where the breadth of the product increases is it goes from just sports betting and esports betting and our version of let's say casino games to uh, 
people just yeah putting putting their money where their mouth is in, in different places and and that's uh that's exciting for a lot of people even if you look at the crypto and nft space that that's a lot of it right mm-hmm. is is getting behind a project and then promoting it and, and trying to uh, defend your position and that's what a lot of sports betting is is really just defending your position but now you've got some skin in the game which makes it more interesting yeah i follow a couple comedians who uh, i forget which brand they were repping but they were they were using uh, some betting site to actually just predict the activities and bet on the activities of other celebrities. Like yeah. will so-and-so die by the end of year at their current rate. And if you're, you can bet on like, if it doesn't happen, you know, it's like, uh, you know, every month afterwards, there's a bonus that they survive. Right. It's kind of morose, but I mean, I, I oh, guess yeah. there's, there's no, there's no real limit to what we can, <laughs> can bet on. No. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, there's ethical and moral limits, but of course, but but uh, there's always going to be someone that's going to take the bet, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, in view of that, uh, where is rivalry going? So, so you're you're already on the cutting edge, um, but doing it in a very, uh, I guess, responsible way um, through uh, through the sort of licensing that you've 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 been granted. Where where are we going next? If you can divulge some of the, the cool things that are they're going to come down the pipe. Yeah, I'd say three three big things. One, we're going to continue to get new licenses and expand into new markets in a regulated and legal way. So if you look at even I liken it to crypto because in many markets and with many many regulators, we're actually like spoken in the same breath because we both look like this fully online thing that seems shady to people that don't know any better. And if you look at the biggest exchanges like Binance, FTX, they all went from, hey, we can operate and do whatever we want. They were moving from Hong Kong to Bahamas to wherever. And now their whole thing is working with regulators is like the new mantra for all of them, right? And there's a reason for that. And it's just customer legitimacy for the mainstream because you find that the whales that were driving your business that made you think that being unregulated was better, they have no loyalty to you whatsoever. And they drive a huge amount of your business, but what you really need is the mainstream consumer and you have to do it in a legitimate way to attract them. So we'll continue to do that. So there's lots of new markets and new licenses we're looking at. The second is like new games. So for sure, we want to continue to build like original product that is not slot machine looking stuff, but just original games that are the kind of thing you would play on your phone or you watch people play on Twitch. But again, low stakes, put a couple of bucks behind it, make it a little bit more fun. Building kind of that games team internally is, is a focus for us. And then the third would be content and media. So we have 20 plus social media properties, multiple content channels. We have 150 brand partners, like influencers, creators, et cetera. Almost a third of the company is creatives and marketing. We're very much like a creative company in terms of how we acquire without relying excessively on promotions and things that are also not really genuine often. So we're massively expanding our creative reach where we, we want that engine to be really strong and build more like original content properties, evergreen content, work with more creators, studio space, all that kind of stuff. So just massively increase like the creative depth of the company. Um, so those are the three big things really for the folks for us this year that people can expect to continue to see from us for sure. That's great. I mean, I, like I, I really, uh, I knew like we did some research on this uh, to, 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 to prep for the, the discussion we were going to have today, but I mean, well, you've been able to elucidate to me in such a quick time has been incredible. Um, what, one other thing uh, before we, uh, you know, really thank you for your time and being so generous with it. Um, does that um, mantra you speak of, you know, going more towards being legitimate, does that make your company more investable uh, when you, since you're a public company? We see this in mining more and more yeah. uh, where, you know, companies that really practice what they call ESG in the mining space do become more ethically viewed and, and therefore more investable. Is that what you see too? 
definitely like if we were not licensed in the Isle of Man and we were in like GRSF, for example, where a lot of these illegitimate crypto sports books claim to be, we would be unable to be listed on the TSX. I don't, I, I don't believe it would have been approved. It also makes it from an M&A perspective, not just someone acquiring us, but even going the other way. You know, why would a great asset or great business want to fold into us if we've got a very unstable foundation from a regulatory perspective where there may be some AML, you know, anti-money laundering or, or some other skeletons in the closet because there's not enough oversight. So it's critical for, it was critical in the early days for raising capital. It's critical for being public and maintaining our public standing. And then also for getting new licenses. So because our initial foundation was so strong, getting the Australia license in Ontario, we were advantaged by being legitimate. If we were coming out that from either no license or having run against some unregulated crypto related sports book, then it would have been different. I'm not overly trying to shit on those things. It's more that we, because we also use crypto, it's a deposit method. It's one of our more popular ones. And we're, we're pushing really hard into that space from a, from a sign in and deposit method perspective. We think it's like critical to the future for our product as well. But those, those experiences, yeah, I mean, they don't KYC you. They don't really care where you're from if you're in a legal or illegal jurisdiction. So you can be 14 years old in the US and you're depositing and you're playing slot machines in 60 seconds on some of these sites. And they're being promoted by, they're being promoted, unfortunately, by very blue chip influencers and people that don't know any better because they don't know enough about this industry. So mm-hmm. we want to get rid of that. We, th- that's not healthy for anybody. So yeah, it's to answer your question, it doesn't make us more investable, but we're also trying to clean things up a little bit, to be honest with you. That's great. That's a great place to end because, uh, you know, gambling has that sort of like old steam paddle wheel boat sort of, uh, you know, skin on it. Yep. And uh, it's really good that, uh, you know, you're bringing it in and making it so current and modern, but also ethical. So that's great. Appreciate it. You know, thanks so much, Stephen. We appreciate uh, your time again. I think, yeah, like I think Stephen and I learned a lot and hopefully the listeners get a lot of it, out of it as well. It's always great. Uh, I think we can bring uh, you know, some some of these cutting edge companies to the, to the audience. And I think at the same time, every every week we learn something new and certainly that's uh, that was the case this week again. That's great. No, thanks. And to anyone listening, we have a jobs page. We're hiring a lot of people. So yeah, go great. to jobs, jobs.rivalry.com for sure if you're interested. And you can find me on Twitter, just my full name. So, but no, thank you guys for, for having me. I appreciate the platform. Sure. sure. And maybe, maybe we could share that, uh, that careers page in the, uh, in the show notes. So yeah, we will uh, we make that, that available. Great. Thanks so much for your time. eh? thanks. Appreciate okay. it guys. Thanks Take Steven. Care. Talk to you later. We're back with the Unlikely Innovators, uh, which is now a gaming podcast because this is back-to-back <laughs> weeks. Uh, the previous week, we always had uh, Tim Borgaris from 54E Dev Studios. You know, now we have Rivalry on, so we're going to keep the trend going for as long as people will say yes to us. The thing that I didn't say in our conversation with Stephen and I wanted to say, because you brought up ProLine, and I mm. only have one ProLine story in my life. So the first time I ever played ProLine was with hockey, which is you know, with ProLine is a very difficult sport to bet on. Hockey is a very difficult sport to bet on just because it's so random. Sure. And the first ticket I ever bought, I, I forget what I bet. It was over under on something. I won, but I lost the ticket. So it fell out of my jacket pocket. I was never able to cash it. Yeah. And then I never won again. I kept playing and I'd never win. So I'm like, this must have been an omen that uh, me losing that ticket uh, so anyway, I, I obviously I haven't played ProLine in, in many, many years, um, but that's that's my only ProLine story that I could I could give you. Well, I know that there's another story you had. Was it you that owed my friend Eric money from the pool side bets? 
No, or was it the other way? Eric around? owed us money. He, I, I think he did pay up. Yeah, I think he but did. Without interest, without interest. I should have charged him interest because it took a good. Uh, it was it, a couple of years. It took a couple of years. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, but, but no, it's. I think it. It. It kind of made me think of. Uh, you know, I mentioned in the podcast, but when I was like hardcore into like Call of Duty, um, yeah. like I don't think pro gaming esports e like that wasn't a thing yet, right? But I would say that if, yeah, if, if it was, that would have been Call of Duty 2 or Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 was probably the best game that I was ever, the best I was ever good at a video game. Yeah, yeah. But I missed the boat. And, uh, you know, now I'll have to just think about that for the rest of my life. I mean, you know, Mike, you can do things just for the pleasure of it. You don't have to be a professional at everything. Well, let me, I'll give you a little bit of an arc there because, it, and I think this kind of does tie back into my... Uh, my neuroses of being maybe a perfectionist and ultra competitive was that like, as, as I got older and time started to be, there's a, a more of a premium on my time. I stopped gaming. And a big reason was cause like, I don't want to online game if I'm going to be bad. Right. So like if, when I was, <laughs> when I was online gaming, like you're doing it every night, but then yeah. if I'm only able to do it, like maybe a couple times a week, I'm going to get like killed literally on in the game. So I like, I don't want to do it anymore. And so I've, I've kind of stopped. I do still enjoy like campaign mode with a lot of these games because I can do it whenever I want and I could save yeah. it and I can come back to it. And it's not as high stakes as it used to be. I think if there was like, you know, back in the world of, uh, you know, if Twitch or online betting existed when I was gaming, there would be like a prop bet for does Mike Camito throw his controller at the wall, you know, <laughs> after this matchup, that was the, that was the kind of uh, intensity I brought to, to call of duty. Yeah. And I believe it was you that, uh, did you not have an Xbox where you had to use the blanket trick on a few times? I, yeah, I did. I had the rings of death and uh, which again, for anybody listening who you know may not have experienced this because certainly I think Xbox has come a long way you know, <laughs> since the early two thousands, but uh, it used to be called the red rings of death, which essentially meant that your Xbox was pooched and you had to get a new one. But there was a, there was a hack where if you were to wrap your Xbox, like in a bunch of blankets and towels it would obviously like like melt and fuse some of the parts inside the Xbox and then it would work again. And you see some stuff on the internet where you're like, this is obviously just going to wreck it further. And now I'm definitely gonna have to buy a new Xbox, but I can attest to doing it. You could smell like electronics and components, obviously reaching a temperature they should never reach. But I swear to God, it, it worked for months after that. And it, <laughs> it delayed me having to get a new Xbox. There you go. <laughs> All right, so some parting words uh, from the late, great Norm MacDonald. Don't bet on football because the ball's not round. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. See you next week. The Unlikely Innovators with Mike Comito and Steve Gravel. Presented by Cambrian R&D and the Center for Smart Mining.